Isaiah 44. If you need Bibles, it looks like Jim is ready to love you. So from the weird analogy department, there's weird, there's really weird, there's even Patrick thinks it's weird. <laughs> I was talking to a friend last week, not a pastor, but serious Bible student. And we were talking about Isaiah and different approaches to Isaiah and ways to read, ways to teach Isaiah. And I said, how much of Isaiah do you think we really grasp? You know, at the end of any given study, how, how, much, how much have we gathered and how much have we left on the stock? The person I'm talking to said, it's sort of like American Pie by Don McLean. Okay, you know it's full of references, and some of them are obvious. There's Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens and the day the music died, and some of it is, is right there for the picking. Others, one person says it's Bob Dylan, and someone says, no, 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 that's Elvis. You look at it and say, well, that's clearly the Beatles, until somebody says, well, no, 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 that's actually the, the birds. And, and probably, if you, if you sift through enough of it, you can probably get most of it right. But there's always going to be a few that if Don McLean ever condescended to explain the song, and you said, hey, here's what I think, he'd say, yeah, that's a good interpretation. I wish I'd thought of that, but no, that's not what I meant at all. And my friend says, that's how I feel about Isaiah. I feel like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go before the Lord and and say, this is how I understand this, this amazing book. And God's going to say, yeah, that's, that's a really good guess, but it's not even close. But I still love you. I told you it was a weird analogy. But let's dig into Isaiah 44, and we'll try to get close. Knowing that there's going to be some left for gleaning. We could, we could finish Isaiah. We could turn right around and start it all over again and do it again and do it again. There would still be some left for gleaning. But there's a lot of amazing truth that's within our grasp that we can harvest here. We looked at the first five verses last week. Let's look at them again because we've slept since then. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshun, who I have chosen, for I'll pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This is God speaking, obviously, through Isaiah, and speaking to Israel in exile. We've made that point every week for, well, since we started chapter 40. God's speaking to his people carried off by the Babylonians. His people who may have been wondering, why did God let this happen? Why did God allow us to be so defeated 
Why did God allow us to be driven into exile? God is reminding them, <laughs> you're mine. And no one touches you without my permission. This is the punishment that I ordained. Punishment for what? Disobedience, obviously, but more specifically, idolatry. Israel could not stop worshiping, trusting in, believing in, relying upon false gods. That was the sin, Judah, Israel before Judah, now God's people, Israel, together, combined, could not put away, would not put away, not for long. God said, above all other commandments, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And they did. <laughs> again and again they did. And God would chase them and they'd put their false gods away for a while. Then they'd pull them back out. God would chase them again. They'd put them away for a while. Most of the Old Testament up to this point, most of the Old Testament recorded by the time Isaiah is prophesying, is the record of this cycle, this history of Israel's struggle to trust God and obey God and follow God alone. God's already made this point several times in this book, but many, many times in this book, several times just in this section of this book, right? I'm greater than any idol. I'm greater than all the idols put together. Here in chapter 40, he's, 44, he's returning to that theme. I chose you, he says, verse 1. I chose you. I picked you. Could have picked any people group in the world. I chose you to be my people. Before I chose you, let's go back even further, verse 2. Before I chose you, I made you. And, verse 2, I will remake you. Okay, where is that? I missed that, Patrick. Where are you seeing that? Well, he says, fear not, O Jacob. What does Jacob mean? The, the, the whole Israel and Jacob, Jacob and Israel thing, right? Jacob means deceiver. And God refers to his people as Jacob, as the descendants of Jacob, the deceiver, the trickster, when Israel is following their flesh. Calls them Israel when they're getting it right, when they're following God. Israel means God perseveres or God prevails. Fear not, O Jacob, deceiver, sinner, rebel, I will call you Jeshurun, which means upright. That name, that title only shows up one other part of Scripture, Deuteronomy 32 and 33, it shows up a handful of times across those two chapters. What do we have in those two chapters? What do we have at the end of Deuteronomy? Oh yeah, God's covenant. God's promises. God is saying, yeah, you are a bunch of stinking sinners. You could not be more rebellious. That's why you are where you are. You disobeyed me and I'm punishing you. I told you, back when I called you, Jeshurun, that if you disobeyed, disobeyed me often enough, long enough, I'd send you into exile. I warned you this was what was going to happen. But I told you something else. I told you at the same time, I would never abandon you, never forsake you, never destroy you utterly. God's reminding him of that. You're Jacob. But when I'm done with you, 
you will be Jeshurun. I will remake you and you will be upright. You are, you are where you are right now by my hand, God is saying. I willed it, I allowed it, I ordained it. And when I'm ready, when this season has served its purpose, I will end it. Showing in the process that I'm greater than any idol. That I'm God who makes promises and then brings them to pass. I'm going to bring about revival, he says in verse 3 and 4. Physical revival, the restoration of the planet, especially in the Middle East, substantially undoing the curse, but also, and more importantly, spiritual revival. I'm going to pour my spirit out upon my people, out on you. Someone asked me last week about verse 5. One says, I am the Lord's, and another will call himself by the name Jacob. And it was a good question. Okay, if this is Israel in the kingdom, if this is revived Israel, why is anybody calling themselves by that old name, Jacob? It's a good question. I don't know that I have an airtight answer, but I have a theory. Don't we call ourselves Jacob? Maybe not that name, but don't we say of ourselves, who are we? Sinners saved by grace. Jacob, now Jeshurun. One will call himself, yeah, I'm somebody that for no good reason God reached down and delivered from rebellion. I was a Jacob, and God decided for no good reason, no, no reason I understand, no reason I can comprehend that he was going to love me. No matter what I did, God said, I'm going to love you because I've decided to. And even when I took his love and kept chasing my sin, even, even on this side of the cross, God continues to love me. He continues to say, you can do that. And you can suffer the consequences. And I'm still going to love you. Because I loved you when you were Jacob. But while we're on the subject, God continues in verse 6, while we're talking about love and blessing and promises, do any of your idols, God asks, do any of them love you the way that I do? Keep promises the way that I do. Bless you the way that I do. Thus says the Lord, verse 6, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order before me. If he can do it, let him do it. Somebody show me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You're my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? I'm waiting. No? Yeah, I didn't think so. Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. What did God just say? He said, I'm the God of eternity in verse 6. He reminded us before there was anything else, I am. He told us he was the God of history in verse 7. He appoints times and peoples and places. Empires rise and fall at his say-so. And then he went on to say, 
verse 7 into verse 8, that he's the God of prophecy, who declares history, who writes history before it happens. God says, you've seen me do this. You're my witnesses. I've done it through Isaiah. You've watched Isaiah speak truth and have it unfold. Who is like me, the God of eternity, history, and prophecy? He answers his own question, none. There is no rock, there is no God like our God. So why, God asks, starting at verse 9, why you keep going back to gods that aren't like me? Why do you keep going back to these phonies, these frauds, these idols? And he's imparting a two-part message here. On the one hand, he's saying, look, having punished you for your idolatry, I'm going to forgive you. You forced my hand. I sent prophet after prophet reminding you of what I told Moses centuries ago. Keep going this way, and this is what I'll have to do. But having done that, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to restore you. Babylon's not going to be the last chapter of your story. But at the same time, he's exhorting them, isn't he? At the same time, he's pleading with his people, when I restore you, when I send you back, please don't go back to your idols. Please don't go back. Why would you go back? Verse 9, those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. And the workmen, they're mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Don't go back to idols. Idols are useless. The ones who make idols are fools, and those who worship idols should be ashamed. You don't believe me, God says? Let's take a tour together. Verse 12, the blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals. Some make idols out of metal. They fashion it with hammers and work it with the strength of their arms. Even so... He's hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. What happens when a man manufactures a god? It's hard work. At the end of it, he's drained. If he doesn't drink water, he's, he's, he's passing out. It's hard, tiring work. There's probably a sermon to be preached in there comparing false worship being exhausting with true worship, worship of the true and living God, what happens when we worship the true and living God? Isaiah 40, verse 31, we renew our strength. There's a sermon in there somewhere. But, but the primary point the Lord is making here, how strong can a God be made by a man who gets exhausted by making it? Can a weak man make a strong God? Next verse, verse 13, God turns his attention to the carpenter. Because some idols are made out of metal, others are made out of wood. And it, same thing, God says. The craftsman, the carpenter, stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man. According to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. According to the beauty of a man. Beauty, we know, is in the eye of 
the beholder, one man's trash is another man's treasure. What Isaiah is saying, one man's God is another man's garbage. Yeah, one man fashions it just so according to his taste, according to his aesthetic, according to his sense of what a God should look like. But someone else is going to say, ah, that doesn't look like a God to me. But that's what happens when we chisel out gods for ourselves. But the Holy Spirit's not done. Where does the carpenter get his raw material anyway? Trees. What about trees? Verse 14, he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. So let me get this straight. The carpenter makes an idol, makes a god out of wood, cuts down a tree to make a god. Where does the tree come from again? <laughs> That's what the, this, is, this is one of the places where, where God indulges in sarcasm. If, if you track down the places in Scripture where God indulges in sarcasm, it's always I can't think of an exception in reference to false gods. God looks at idols and says, really? <laughs> Who made the tree? Who sent the rain that, that, that grows the tree? Who made the dirt in which the tree grows? Your God comes from that? That's the first thing about trees. Second thing about trees, what happens to the, the wood that's left over after you've made the God? What was it that, that Michelangelo said? Somebody said, how do you make these fabulous statues? He says, well, I just I visualize the, the man and I chisel away everything that, that isn't the man. Okay, what, what happens when you've chiseled away everything that doesn't look like your God? Verse 15, then it shall be for a man to burn. The leftover God stuff gets burned. <laughs> He'll take some of it and warm himself. He kindles it and makes bread. Indeed, he makes a God and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. And he burns the other half in the fire. <laughs> With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a God. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. I made you, now free me. This is rich irony that the Lord is indulging in, but it's only ironic because people do it. God's driving his point home by pointing out that's the worship of the people group that has ensnared and enslaved Israel. That's the worship that's going on all around them in Babylon. And he's asking, do you see the lunacy? You who are in need of deliverance, do you recognize that the false gods all around you, in the city, in the community, in the country, the gods throughout this empire that has enslaved you, do you recognize, I hope you do, God says, they won't, they can't deliver you. Do you see the lunacy? If you do, verse 18, if you see the idiocy, if you see the insanity, it's because I've shown you. Because look all around you. They don't see it. Verse 18, they do not know the Babylonians or other idol worshipers for that matter, but I think especially the Babylonians are in view here. They don't know 
nor understand, for he shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire, and baked bread on its coals, roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Hey, that seems like a good idea. Except he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is it not a lie in my right hand? They're blind and cannot see their own blindness. They're lost, verse 20. They're lost and don't know they're lost. They're lost, and because they don't know they're lost, they're unable to save themselves but you're not lost. This is where God started, and that's the point he returns to in verse 21. You're not lost because I never lost sight of you. When I was a little kid, I was, went walking through the woods with my dad's best friend's mom, who was basically my grandmother, grandmother figure in my life. We went walking in the woods, and we got lost. And I looked at her and I said, we're lost, aren't we? I was a little kid. I didn't know a lot. I knew that I'd never seen this part of the woods before. And she says, well, I know where you are. And you know where I am. So how lost can we be? <laughs> Incredibly comforting to little four-year-old Patrick. <laughs> Incredibly comforting to Israel. God says, you're not lost. Because I've been with you this whole time. You're not lost. Because I've never lost sight of you, even in exile. Even as I've punished you, my eye has been on you. Haven't taken my off, eye off of you for a moment. And I will deliver you. Verse 21, remember these, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You're my servant. We don't think of it this way, but God is speaking of a relationship that's intimate, that's close. I formed you. You're my servant. O oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And Israel's response when that happens, verse 23, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Do you notice the irony? Slow down, don't miss this. What is praising God in verse 23? Mountains, trees, mines, the source of all the idols, the iron, the stone, the wood, the materials with which idols are fashioned. Praise the living God. When? What's in view here, verse 23? It's obvious, but let's be clear. What history is the Holy Spirit writing in advance in verse 23? It's Israel's redemption. 
not just their redemption from exile, and it's not even just their, their redemption from their idolatry. This is the repentance of Israel writ large. Redemption, redemption, restoration. This is second coming. This is kingdom stuff. Worth being clear, because verse 24, the lens snaps back. Verse 23, we're looking at the second kingdom. I'm sorry, the second coming and the ushering in of the millennial kingdom. Verse 24, the lens snaps back to short-term prophecy. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, who hasn't been born yet and won't be born for 150 years, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid." In Hebrew, verses 24 to 28 are one sentence. I think that's where Paul got the idea. Verses 24 to 28, one sentence. And we're going to look at it more closely next week because there's a lot going on. But just, just by overview, just from 30,000 feet, verse 24, God says, again, I'm the God of all creation. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. I did it myself. There's no one else who could have. There's no one like me. Verse 25, he says, I'm greater than the astrologers. I'm greater than the magicians. I'm greater than any dabbler in the occult. Verse 26, he says, I'm the author of prophecy. Prophecy that I speak through my servant Isaiah. I speak and I bring it to pass. The restoration of Jerusalem and Judah, the temple, I've spoken it, it's going to happen. I've done it before, he says, verse 27. I parted the Red Sea for Moses. I parted the Jordan for Joshua. I'm God who makes a way. And I'm going to do it again, verse 28. I'm going to do it this time through a man named Cyrus, a man who's not going to be born for 150 years, but he's going to be born. He's going to come to power, and he's going to give the order go home. He's going to tell my people, go back and rebuild your city. Go back and rebuild the temple. Question, why this hard pivot back to short-term prophecy at the end of the chapter? Verse 23, that was a culmination. That was a climax. That was a, other words that mean climax, apex, high point, zenith. Why, why, why then it's sort of, it's almost underwhelming. Why do you go from the second coming to a miracle, but a lesser miracle? Because the long-term prophecy is confirmed by the short-term. Israel's deliverance eventually, one day by Jesus, will happen. How can we be sure? Because God said it. How can we be sure it's God who said it? Because the thing that God said at the same time that Israel would be released and sent home by Cyrus happened just the way God promised. What did, he, what did God say of himself back in verses 6, 7, and 8? I'm the God of eternity. 
history and prophecy, the way you know Israel will be delivered ultimately is that Israel was already delivered once, exactly the way that God said. He raised up, get this, what did he call Cyrus? A shepherd. Told us his name in advance. Who did what? Performed all of God's pleasure. Because of him, Jerusalem was built. Because of him, the temple was built. And because of another shepherd, whose name God told us, in advance, Emmanuel, who did all of God the Father's pleasure. Everything you told me to do, I did, Jesus said. Nothing, I didn't do anything that you didn't tell me to do. Because he did, the church began, where? Jerusalem. And you and I tonight are temples of the living God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. And one day Israel is going to get that. One day Israel is going to believe that. One day a remnant of Israel, not all of Israel, but a remnant of Israel is going to confess that. That the God who did that is their Redeemer. He calls himself by that name, by that title again and again, just in this chapter. I'm your Redeemer. And one day, the remnant of Israel will realize that he is as ready to deliver them as he was in the 5th century B.C. We'll circle back and we'll look at verses 24 to 28 again next week. But as we wrap up this week, what do we take away? I mean, so many things, right? God spoke so many things about himself. The faithfulness of God, the mightiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the graciousness of God. Wrap it up all together. This is a chapter about the greatness of God. The guys are getting ready to study Hebrews on Monday nights. When we studied Hebrews on, on Sunday mornings, our theme, our through line, our, our home plate that we came back to again and again, Jesus is better. That, that's sort of the theme tonight. I mean, all, all through Isaiah and all through the Bible, but really tonight. Anything good or meritorious we can think to say about anything, God is more. God is greater. He's more faithful. He's more just. He's more merciful. He's more gracious. He's more powerful. And, and, and because he's all of those things, he's also more incomprehensible. It's beyond finding out. This, this is where I am tonight. You know, the Holy Spirit makes application to each of our hearts individually. Where I am tonight is just, just realizing Confessing to God, man, I spend a lot of time trying to understand God. Trying to understand God's word, trying to understand the God of the word. What's really going on here, Lord? What are you doing? What are you saying? What's your plan? What's your purpose? How are you? Why are you? How are you still the way you are? But I'm the way I am. And, 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 and my takeaway is, is, is that God just is. He is. He's the great I am. 
from everlasting to everlasting. Always was, always will be, and tonight he is. I don't know in heaven that we're going to fully comprehend everything that God is. I know this side of heaven, we won't. We can peruse and scrutinize Isaiah every day until God comes back. And every time we'll get a little closer, but it, what do you call those things? Asymptotes? We're never going to quite get there. Closer and closer, we're never going to get there. But here's what we know. We were Jacob. And for reasons that we don't understand, God looked at us and said, I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Lord, we are in awe of that love. And, and I pray, Lord, that we would spend less time racking our brains trying to unscrew the inscrutable trying to put you in a box so that we can study you and analyze you and and more time just being in awe just letting your greatness overwhelm us and responding with praise the praise of our voice the praise of our lives laying down our agendas, making the gifts that you've given us available for you to use. Having redeemed us, Jesus, redeem us. Redeem our time, redeem our days for your glory. We give them to you again. Israel turns to idols and puts them away, turns to idols and puts them away. We worship you, we worship ourselves. We worship you, we worship ourselves. Tonight, Lord, we worship you. We lay down our lives. We say, use us for your glory. And we praise your name.